Lord, we thank you that it's an incredible thought that we are your beloved, that we are your treasured possession. Lord, that he that knows us best loves us most. You know, everything about us, you know, every wicked, vile thing we've ever done, times we've disappointed you, the times we've fallen short, the, the thoughts that, that go through our mind, you know all of it, and yet you love us anyway. What a great and awesome God you are. We just thank you that we are your beloved. And Lord, I pray that in the way that you love us, Lord, may we love you back. Lord, may we have that same love, that same passion, that same heart for you. And then, Lord, I pray we'd also have that love one for another. Lord, that we would pour out your love upon each other and be an example to the world around us. So, Father, I pray as we go to your word right now, we thank you for your love letter you've put into our hands. Lord, I just pray you'd minister to every heart. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher, not man. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one, so raise your hand. If you do have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy 25, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Uh, People are asking me again tonight about the building situation. We should know something this week, it sounds like. And I just want to encourage you. Some people are worried, oh, if we get a building, is everything going to change? And other people, you know, hey, here's the thing. We're going to keep teaching the Bible and loving God's people, and a building is just a place for us to meet. We're the church wherever we're at. Amen? And so if we move into a building, it's going to be because that's what God wants, and we're not going to be foolish nor faithless. We're not going to do anything outside of God's will, but we also don't want to sit back and not do something when God's the one providing and leading. Amen? So just be in prayer for that because we want to, again, walk in the center of God's will and be able to minister to the people of Santa Cruz County in the most effective way possible. Whenever God wants us to do that, then that's what we want to do. Well, tonight we're continuing again, looking at Moses' last words, if you will, to the children of Israel. He's 120 years old. He's already been told he's not going into the land of promise. And now the second law is being given. He's repeating again. That's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law. So for the second time to that next generation, he's giving them the law. He's giving them the truth because many of them, when it was initially given, were either not born yet or were very young. They watched an entire generation pass away in the wilderness. And so now they're getting ready to march in and now he's giving them their marching orders, if you will. So this is Moses' final words. And so we see here they're about to enter into God's highest. And that for each of us is a picture of this spirit-filled life. And even in a spirit-filled life, you and I need godly direction. Now, they didn't have the Bible like we do. He's just giving them the law. He's just giving them the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so we have such an advantage because we have both the Holy Spirit and the completed Word of God. And we should not rely on one without the other. Amen? Amen? Too many people are talking about the Spirit told me this and the Spirit's moving this and the Spirit's leading this way. Hey, amen for the Spirit moving in your life, but the Spirit will never contradict the Word. Amen? And it's so important that we be in the Word so we know if it's really the Spirit or an unfamiliar Spirit, amen, or a false Spirit. I have people tell me that the Holy Spirit told them to do stuff all the time that's not God. And so it's so important that we know what the Bible says. And at the same time, we need to not look at the Bible like a a history book only. It is a history book, and it is His story, amen? History is His story, and we know that. But at the same time, we still need the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth to us. 
And so as they're about to head to the land of promise, they, they need godly direction. Even though, again, they've been led through the wilderness by the pillar of fire and the pillar of, of the cloud, and we're still going to have the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory of God in their midst, they still needed godly direction. They still needed God's word to lead their lives. And so do you and I. And the law served as God's guidance for the protection of His people, as we're going to see tonight, the provision for those who served Him, and for proper punishment. Now, a lot of people struggle with that. Because our God is a loving, gracious, and righteous God, but guess what? He's also a God who's righteous in bringing punishment against those who reject Him. Those who live outside of His will. Now, what is His ultimate desire that discipline, godly discipline, godly judgment, or even the word punishment would bring? Is it that it would bring restoration? That through the difficulties and disobedience, it would bring us to the end of ourselves. But ultimately, if we continue to reject God, there's a punishment that will last forever. So we're going to see that He's a loving God who protects us. He's a gracious God who provides for us. But He's a righteous God who brings judgment upon those who reject Him. And all of it is done out of His love for us. Again, the reason that He provides is because He loves us. The reason that He protects us is because He loves us. But for the very same reason, He also brings righteous judgment or discipline or punishment. So let's begin by looking at that. First, we're going to see the righteous punishment, the protection for people that is a deterrent to future crime, but also is a puni- the punishment must fit the crime. God's a righteous God. He's, not going to give us, he's never going to give us more than what's fair. Because you know what? Praise God, He doesn't give us what's fair. Amen? He's always gracious in what He gives us. And we're going to see that tonight in the righteous discipline, the righteous provision, and again, the righteous protection. And then finally, we're going to look at one of my favorite texts, and that's the situation with the Amalekites who run, run throughout the entire Old Testament. And we're going to see both God's divine protection of His own people, but again, His divine judgment or punishment upon those who again were attacking His people. So let's begin looking at a message I titled tonight, Punishment, Provision, and Protection. It's the same God. Some people struggle. Well, I like the God of provision. He's great. God of divine judgment, not, not, I don't like Him too much, right? It's the same God, amen? And we need to see it's the same character. And all of it is done out of love for us. So, righteous punishment, protection for the people, a deterrent to future crime, and again, the punishment must fit the crime. Verse 25. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Now, if there's a dispute between men, now guess what? They're going into the land of promise. How many people do they have with them, roughly? Two, three million people? Do you think there might be some disputes? Now, again, they're going into the land of promise. They're going to, into the, you know, the Spirit-filled life. But even when we're walking with the Lord and we're filled with the Spirit and we're seeking after God, we still get in our flesh sometimes, don't we? And because we do, and because we are around other people, there are going to be disputes. So he says, look, you're going to the land of promise, there's still going to be disputes, so how do you take care of these disputes? The word dispute in the original language is a contest, a contention, a controversy, a strife. So even in the land flowing with milk and honey, a land of promise, there would still be disputes between men. And that's an important point for us to understand. No matter how great your surroundings or how perfect your circumstances may be, there's still going to be struggles in your life. Too often we think, if everything is perfect, then I'll be fine. If I can just get all my circumstances just right, I won't have these trials anymore. I won't have these disputes anymore. Not true at all. Again, as we walk with the Lord and seek His face, there's still going to be times of difficulty. If not, again, 
put to death daily, guess what's going to happen? Our flesh is going to rise up. It's going to seek its own way, its own pride, its own pleasure, its own comfort. And that's going to result in disputes with others. I do believe this, though. I want to make this clear. I believe if I'm walking in the fullness of the Spirit and so are you, we're not going to dispute. I truly believe that. It's when I get into my flesh, even for a moment, those disputes rise up. Holy Spirit's not the author of confusion, amen? If we're both walking in the fullness of the Spirit, and we're both seeking God with our whole heart, we're both in the Word, we're in fellowship, we're loving one another, those things aren't going to happen. But if we get in the flesh, even for a moment, then those disputes rise up. Remember, as we're going into this land, there's no police and no government agencies, okay? So as they go in, they're going to have to be self-governing. And part of that self-governing means that they're going to have, when they have disputes, there's got to be a way to resolve them. So here's what he says. When this happens, come to the court that the judges may judge them. Now what is this court? This court were the, the religious judges of the day. These were not governmental judges. They were righteous men. They were men called by God, set apart by God. The priest, if you will. Judges, all right? Different positions. Now, the Sanhedrin was 71. There were 71 of them. In the lesser courts, there were 23 judges. But no court had less than three judges at a time. To make sure that they came together and they brought them before the judges. And these righteous men would look from, a, again, an unbiased perspective. Again, led by the Lord. And they would give righteous judgment. Now notice they didn't take vengeance out on themselves. On each other. They didn't say go down in the middle of the city square and start wailing on each other. And whoever's standing last wins, right? No, he said you go and you come before the judge. And you bring the dispute. And you allow them to, to rightly divide the truth. These were men appointed by God, called to deliver righteous judgment based on the truth of God's word. As Christians, guess what, guys? We're not to bring our disputes before worldly judges. Amen? What if somebody's just ripping me off big time? Give it to the Lord. If the person's a Christian and they have a church and a pastor, go to their pastor. Go to, go to a place where godly judgment will take place. Because we, we talked about this earlier. When you go before the world, what happens? It blows our testimony. And you know what? The Bible says to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. So if we go before a man who doesn't know God to judge between two believers, what kind of judgment are we going to get? We should be willing to go to the church and say, hey, here it is. And whatever you decide is fine. Lord, I trust you. And Lord, you, you, you put these people in this position. Lord, I put it into your hands. God's a faithful God. Do you think if we respond in faith like that, that God's going to ha- cause us to go through harm? Of course not. We need to learn to be faithful and put it in God's hands. And so he's calling them to come before the judges. And again, the Christian leadership today would be the equivalent, who will judge based on the word of God, not the wisdom of men. Now it says there, what, what are they called to do? To justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. This is the simple responsibility of all governments and courts is to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Is that happening today? No, it's not. So that means that we should play by the new rules. So if the rules are you can get away with it, if the rules are that's how things work, then that's the way we should respond. Absolutely not. God's word is still the authority in our lives. Amen? You know, we answer to the authority that, that, again, we recognize. You know, there are times... When I've had somebody who's been wronged by an unbeliever, and they try to bring them in for godly counsel, and they won't take it, when I've told them, go to the police. Why? Because you have to take the person to the authority they will recognize. If they won't recognize the body, and they just won't do anything about it, now pray about it. God might want you to just let it go, but at the same time, sometimes there are criminal acts and things like that that need to be reported to the police. 
That's why God has police in, in the positions that they're in. So he says here that they're to acquit those who are good and condemn those or punish those who are guilty of a crime. And they were to make sure that the, as we're going to see in the next couple of verses, that the punishment is appropriate to the crime committed. Now we're going to read this, and let me tell you right now, this is going to be not like anything you see happening today. People would just be, if this stuff was happening today, people would be flipping a switch like no other. They would say, you guys are out of your mind. There's no way this should be happening. Well, guess what? I want to talk to you about one thing. Back when they did things God's way, there was very little crime. <laughs> Almost none. And guess what? How does that compared to today? You know, oh man, you get, that's just too brutal to beat people. You mean that God says to beat people, as we're going to see in the next two verses? Yes, he does. Beat them. Beat them. Yeah, beat them. But that's just not right. Let me ask you a question. The kids who are totally out of control, they're the ones being disciplined too much or not disciplined enough. I'm around Little League Field, and the kids that are flipping off the coach and screaming and cussing, and rah, 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 I'm like, that's not a kid who's being disciplined too much. That's a kid who needs you know, the Board of Education applied to the, you know, the seat of learning, right? It's okay. You know, never in anger. Never in anger. Always done in love. But the Lord is very clear because why? Because again, without discipline, our flesh is just going to run amok. Without there being any guidance or direction or wisdom. In Romans it says, For the rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of authority? unafraid of authority? Do what is good. You know how you'll know if you're doing what is good? When you see a police officer on the freeway, what do you do first? Hit your brakes? Is that an impulse? <laughs> right? That's a sign that you're not doing what is good. But if you're driving the speed limit, you're unafraid of the authority. Amen? If you're doing what is right in God's eyes, policemen are a blessing, not something to be feared. I'm not afraid of police officers. Praise God for them. Amen? I pray for them. But if you're walking outside of the law, guess what? You're not going to want anything to do with them. You're going to have bad names to call them. Right? Things that produce bacon, right? Things like that. And people call police officers names. Why? Those are people, again, who are walking outside of God's will and outside of the law of the land. Those are the ones. And the same is true of God. People, some people look at God as being a no fun, you know, condemning God, but that's because they're walking outside of God's will, living in rebellion against Him, and then they don't want to, oh, hey, hey, well, fear Him if you're not walking with Him. You should. Fear of God's the beginning of wisdom. That's a good thing. If you're walking with the Lord, you don't, you don't have that kind of fear. You have a love for Him. Communion with Him. And so it says in, in Romans 13, Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practice evil, practices evil. Now in the area of criminal justice, that's not carried out by the church. Today, it's carried out by the government. And God has placed them in those positions of authority. And so we are to respect them until they tell us to do something contrary to the Bible. Now, if they, start out, if they outlaw the Bible, then i got a problem with them, and I'm going to be in jail, okay? If they outlaw the teaching of the Word or whatever. And again, I don't, I don't agree with some of the law. I don't agree with abortion, which is murder, by the way. Period. In all cases, amen? All cases. Now, again, we should not judge the baby for the sins of the father. And if something tragic has happened, I guarantee you, myself included, you can, I'll take your children right now. My wife and I, carte blanche, you have my guarantee, and I guarantee there's other people in the church that would do the same. And why is that important? Because we need to understand that though the laws of the land may be wrong, we submit to the areas where, again, they don't contradict the word of God. 
And too often I hear people say, oh man, well that's just, you know, I commit to, to God alone. No, he says in Romans 13 to submit to the godly authorities put in the government too. Amen? And we're to honor them and pray for them. What if they don't know God? Pray for them. Amen? Now today's government is God's appointed judges against criminal activity. And again, they're called to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. They don't always do it. But here's the good news. The ultimate judgment is coming and it will be righteous. Amen? So even though somebody gets away with murder... From our perspective, did they really? No, they didn't. We need to pray for them, that there will be repentance and brokenness and drawn back into a right relationship with God. Again, before God Almighty, He will justify the righteous and He will condemn the wicked. And we need to trust Him. Verse 2. Then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten. So it says there, deserves to be beaten. So God considers that there are some criminal acts that are wicked and deserve to be beaten. Now the word there, wicked... In, the, in Hebrew, is means morally wrong, condemned, guilty, or ungodly. So we have a justice system today that considers itself more compassionate and kind than God himself. They're saying if you beat somebody, that's not compassionate. I disagree. I disagree completely. Is it compassionate to let someone continue on in a destructive way that's only going to harm them? Is it compassionate to let people continue on in sin that brings harm to, to, and victims to people all around them? Is that compassionate? Is it compassionate for me to never discipline my kids and let them grow up to be spoiled, rotten little brats who think the whole world owes them everything? Is that compassionate? No. You know what it is? It's, it's poor parenting. It's sad. It's tragic. And God has commanded that there should be righteous judgment. And there should be discipline. And guess what? Guess who the people are that should be beaten? Anybody who doesn't commit a capital crime. So here are your two choices. Death or beating. Now you know why the crime rate was low. Death or beating. Neither one of those is something I want. How about you, amen? And not only this, as we're going to see here, that they did this again to make it very clear as a deterrent to crime to everyone around them that this was wrong. The reason we struggle in the world today, there's no definite right and wrong anymore. It's all up to you. It's what do you think is right and wrong. There's no, there's no standard for truth. And because of that, people just do what they want. It's moral relativism. If it feels good for me, then I'm going to do it. And right here we see in this text, he says, no. Now we're going to see that, that he calls for this. And again, some people are going to struggle with that. This will go on the radio and we'll, we'll catch some heat about it. That's okay, Right? Because the Word of God is the Word of God, amen? And God said it for a reason, and I trust the Word of God. And it's not the old, antiquated Old Testament. It still applies to our lives today. Now, it's neither kind nor compassionate to allow crime to go unpunished because all it does is produces more criminals and more victims. That's all it does. You know what the world wants to do today? Protect the criminal and not the victim. That's the world we live in today. Instead of coming to the aid of the... We're concerned about the guy that killed 47 people who's on death row. There's people marching up and down to save his life. No repentance. Killed 47 people. What about all the family members of the people that died? Nobody seems to care about that too much. And I think it's ultimately hypocritical. It really is. Pastor Dave, are you telling me you believe in the death penalty? Well, the Bible believes in the death penalty. So I believe in the death penalty. Amen? And again, people don't want to hear that kind of stuff. But see, why? Why Is God a God of love? Yes. Is He a God of compassion? Absolutely. Is it His desire that none should perish? No, not one. Without a doubt. But He will never force Himself on anybody. And man will make his own decision. And when he does, he'll reap the consequences of his own action. Very little crime among the children of Israel 
And the compassionate, quote, compassionate society today, crime is rampant. Look what it says here. If he deserves to be beaten, then the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence. You know what? They not, only did the, not only did they beat them, but they beat them openly and publicly. Man, that's barbaric, isn't it? I don't think so. You know what? I think, I know for a fact, when I was in school, how many guys were in school and they still swatted the kids? You know what? I got swatted. Anybody else here get swatted? Was I the only one? I got swatted. I got swatted for getting in a fight in like the fifth grade. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I didn't get in any more fights. That was the end of that. Going in with the big, you know, it's always the big PE teacher who hands out the you know, swats, right? The big coach with the, you know, the guns, right? And he pulls out this paddle, it's about this long, it's got holes in it to make it aerodynamic. Whoosh, so you can move quickly through the wind, you know? And, and, it, and the kid that I got in a fight with, he made us both stand there and grab our ankles and we had to watch each other get swats. That was not fun. And I'll tell you what, you know, you try not to cry, you won't get, you know, that whole thing. I'm not really not crying, you know. Yeah, and you are. But I'll tell you what, that made an impression on me in more ways than one, right? Made an impression on me. I'm not doing that anymore. I'd see him coming. I'd be the, the nicest kid in the place. How you doing, coach? Good to see you today. You know, I'm not getting any more trouble. I don't want no more swats. Now, if they'd called me in and said, now, you really shouldn't do that. You guys be kind to each other and be compassionate. You're on timeout for five minutes. Oh, stop. I'd be fighting the next day, right? There needs to be some consequence to our actions to bring about a change of behavior. And so we see here that this is God's heart. You're going into the land of promise. There's going to be disputes. And when they come, guess what? You need to deal with it. Deal with it or it's going to continue. Deal with it or crime's going to run rampant. And in other cultures, a prisoner might have been beaten in some dungeon far away of the pre from presence of the judge. But God's way, the judge was there to see the punishment he had ordered. And you know what? I believe that's important today because a lot of times a judge hands down a sentence and five years later they go before some other judge somewhere else and he changes the sentence. And this time it didn't happen that way. He, he made the judgment and he made sure it was carried out. Okay, it's going to happen, let's go. You're up. And they took care of it. Again, he was there to ensure it was carried out. At the same time, he was there to make sure it wasn't overdone. He was there to make sure that it was righteous judgment. That the crime, the punishment fit the crime. It says here, in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Now, I want you to understand something. That during, in the, with the children of Israel, there were no prisons. Now, some of them ended up in Roman prisons or other prisons in other lands. Do you know that the Israelites didn't have any prisons? Why? Because they dealt with it on the spot. We're dealing with it now. So there can be quick restoration. And I praise God for that. To me, that's a picture of the Lord. He doesn't say, okay, you sin, now go sit in that cell for 12 years, and then we'll talk about it later, before a parole board, right? That's not what God does to us. We sin, we come, we repent, He, re he forgives us, and we're restored. Amen? And that's the, the system that was put in place, was it was dealt with quickly. And once it was dealt with, there was immediate restoration. You know, God is into clear object lessons. And a capital crime, they were stoned by the people. And a lesser crime, they were beaten before the people. So every time a crime was committed, everybody knew it. Everybody saw what the judgment was. And nobody wanted to be on that side of it. Ever. They said, you know what, that's not good. Crime is not good. They, didn't, they weren't walking around saying that crime paid back then, right? Like people say today. 
It was a deterrent for future crime. And I've learned this even in my own home. If I spank one of my kids, it's amazing how the other three are really good behavior. One kid gets in trouble and gets swatted, and the other three are like, yeah, can I take the lawn? Can I take out the trash for you? Anything you got for me to do, you know? It's amazing how that when one gets punished, the rest of them go, oh, I don't want to be on that. I want to learn the lesson, right? And this was a deterrent. And so God had put this in place as they were going into this land that would be filled with those who were or walking around in sexual immorality and, and the idol worship and all those other things that would, be to, that would get their eyes off of God. And he wanted to make it really clear that there would still be clear judgment coming from him. And I love the immediate opportunity for restoration. Again, God's program for a minor crime wasn't 10 days in an air-conditioned cell, but it was a public flogging that took place immediately. And as soon as it took place, again, there was an opportunity for restoration. And it's important to note that the number of blows could, any, could be anywhere from 1 to 39. And so it was based on what the person had done. How many of you guys remember some kid over in, I forget where he was, some foreign country, and they were going to cane him? You guys remember this? And they were going to, I don't know how many, hit, and this was like the biggest news ever. Do you remember that? It was, they were talking about it forever. They're attorneys, you can't hit him with a cane five times or whatever it was. And I'm thinking, man, look at the upper. The guy's halfway around the world. He did some vandal. He did something that, you know, equated to caning. And they were going to do it anyway. You're in our country. You're going to deal with it. And they're, I mean, I think the president, I mean, every, President Clinton got involved. Everybody gets involved. The guy's getting a swat. Get over it. He deserves it. I mean, if, you know what I mean? And instead, we want to stop everything. We don't want to stop our behavior or change our behavior. We just want to avoid the consequences of our sin. And instead, what we ought to do is realize our sin has consequences and to change our behavior. As parents, we shouldn't be too lenient and we shouldn't be too harsh. Leniency won't impact behavior and excessive punishment will result in resentment. Can I encourage you with something? Always, 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 always discipline your kids in love. Always. I had a ritual in my house when they were little. I made them go get the, the wooden spoon and go to the laundry room. That's a long walk, by the way. All right, that's it. Get the spoon, meet me in the laundry room. You know, so now they have to go get it, walk in the laundry room, and sit there and wait for me, right? Contemplating what they've done. I would come in, I would talk to them, I'd give them their swats. And after they were done, I would talk to them about what they had done. I'd make them go apologize to whoever they sinned against. And then I would pray with them. And then I would love on them. And, you know, and half the time, I'd get them some ice cream after that. You know why? Because I exhibit righteous judgment, but then I show them grace, you don't just go in there and out of control, mad, angry, and just start wailing. That, that should never happen. Does God do that to us? We should not do that to our children either. Amen? So again, swatting, good thing. Discipline, good thing. Always done in love. Always done with a kind heart. Again, not, not wanting to condemn, but to restore. And again, our heart ought to be that, that we should bring that that discipline to our kids in love. Look what it says there. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. So the maximum number of blows they could give was 40. And the Jews had a tradition. They gave 40 minus one. Now, they said that that was an act of mercy, but it was also to make sure they didn't violate this law because they were miscounting and accidentally give 41. So they gave 39 in case they were off by one. They still hadn't broken the... The law, the law of Moses. And while God, again, while God says beatings are sometimes appropriate, God also agrees that there can be excessive punishment. 
And this was, again, set. Now, the word for, for humiliated here is to be disgraced, to be treated shamefully with contempt. Correction, again, is for restoration, not destruction. Who got beat with 40 lashes minus one five times? The Apostle Paul for serving the Lord. Again, sometimes that correction comes from ungodly sources when we're walking with the Lord. So righteous punishment, protection for the people, a deterrent to future crime. And again, here the punishment was to fit the crime. If somebody did something minor, they might get one or two lashes. But again, if they did something that was just short of a capital crime, they might get 39. And again, the punishment was to fit the crime. Look at verse 4, totally switching gears here. From righteous punishment to righteous provision. Look what it says. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Okay, I won't do that. Not a problem for me, right? Next time I'm treading out grain with my ox, I won't put a muzzle on it. No problem for me, right? What in the world that got to do with you, right? Sometimes we look at these kinds of things. You shall not muzzle an ox. Understand what this is talking about. The ox typically would walk in a circle. As he walked in a circle, tied up, he would walk across the, the husk that would crush down the grain, separate the weed or the grain from the chaff, and he would crush it into something that could be used and, and baked into bread and made. Now, he says, while the ox is doing that, you are not to put a muzzle on him because as he's working, if the ox wants to bend down and eat some of the grain, you should let him. Now, later, we know that these ver- this verse was referred to by the Apostle Paul twice. Once in 1 Timothy and once in 1 Corinthians. And in both cases, what he was talking about was those who live or serve in the gospel full-time should be provided for by those who they minister to. Those who you minister to spiritually should provide for the physical needs of those who who minister spiritually full-time. So he took this verse and applied it in a spiritual way in the New Testament. And again, he has a right to be supported by those he ministers to. It says in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 and 10, he says, Paul asks, is, is it oxen that God's concerned about? Or does he have something altogether for our sakes? So even in this case, he was saying, you know what, an animal that's working should be fed. And how much more should a man or a woman? The Bible says a laborer is worthy of his hire. Amen? And, and, and I said this on Sunday. We should be giving people. So if somebody is working at your house, pay them at least what everybody else would, if not more. Amen? You should be blessing them. It's all God's money. Pay them in a way that would bring glory and honor to the Lord and cause that person to walk away having had a good experience with you. So the man who's ministering to you spiritually is to be ministered to by you physically. And that was, again, the application that Paul drew from this. But in this case, all they would have thought is we need to take care of our animals. So when people commit crimes, as we go into the land of promise, they need to be dealt with immediately. When it comes to our own animals, we're to care for them. The Bible says, by the way, that a righteous man cares for his animal. So that means that as Christians, should we be harming animals? No. Can we eat them? Yeah. Praise the Lord. Amen. But we, you know, we don't torture animals. We don't mistreat animals. Right? But at the same time, God said, you know, Acts 10, rice, kill, and eat. So praise the Lord for that. Verse 5. Now, he's going to talk, continue to talk about righteous provision, but this time for widows. The Bible says the pure and undefiled religion is to minister to the orphans and the widows. That's what the Bible tells us. Look what it says here in verse 5. If, a bro- if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and shall perform the duty of a husband's 
of, the, of a husband's brother to her. So here's how it worked. If a man died and they didn't have any children yet, this was seen as a great tragedy because there was no one to carry on his name and there was no one to give his inheritance to. Most of these guys were farmers. They're living on land. They're plowing the land. The husband dies. The wife can't take care of it. They're, if a stranger comes in, then he's going to inherit the land. This land belonged to God's children. It was not to leave the family. So she needed to marry somebody within the family. So God made a command that if, you know, if, if your brother dies, you're not married, they don't have any children yet, then you're to become her husband. Now this would really change things when like your older brother was dating somebody. There was no dating back then, but can you imagine if he brought her, we're going to be getting married, really, you better bring her over here. I want to see who this is, right? And the same thing with the gal. She's getting married. Now, how many brothers? Do you, who's the next oldest after you? Where is he? Right? Get him in here, right? Why? Because they realize they might be marrying the whole family. I better make sure that, you know, I can get along with brother number two, right? And the same was true with the brother, you know. I, I don't know about her, man. I'm not, I'm not feeling so good about this, right? Because he knows he might end up married to her. And again, it was a divine calling. God said... If he dies, then you're to go take care of her. Why? Because there were not to be widows left alone. Here's the other thing that would happen too. Often if a woman had been married and her husband died, there might be nobody else that was really willing to marry her. They would say, I'm not interested. I, want, I don't want to be married to someone. Sorry. No, I'm not interested. And the Lord's providing that that woman would be cared for. Verse 6, And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So the firstborn son would be considered the son of the deceased brother, and usually they named him the same name as the brother who died. So like if I died, and, my, and I had a little, you know, my little, all my brothers are married, but if I had a little brother who wasn't, and he took my wife, and then they had a child together in this case, then they would name their child after me, so that my name would carry on. Now you can imagine if you're the little brother, you're probably not real thrilled about this whole program. So wait a minute. My big brother dies, I get his wife, we have kids, and they're his. How does that work for me? And again, if we're looking at it from a self-centered perspective, it's going to be very difficult to deal with. So a lot of guys didn't want to do it. A lot of guys said, I don't care what, I'm not doing it. Forget it. He married her, I didn't. He's the one that got, you know, fell off the ox and died. I didn't do that, so it's not my fault. So I'm not doing it. And again, God puts a command in his word because he knows what's best for us. And we need to learn to trust the Lord. And at the same time, I want to say this, because it is important that when you get married, understand that you are marrying a family. You're marrying a family. Now, are we to leave and cleave? Yes. Your mom should not be telling... Women, guys, if your mom is the one giving you counsel, you need to go to your wife, not your mom. Amen? Now, it's okay to ask mom what she thinks, but you better be talking to your husband or talking to your wife. Amen? You leave and cleave. You still have respect for them. You still have love for them, but you leave and cleave. Well, in this case, it was very much that these families were very intertwined because, again, if somebody died without having children, then it was a, literally the command of God that the next son in line would be the one to take her and to care for her. You know what? I think we need a little more of that heart today that we should be caring for all of our family. The first place we ought to be able to go in time of difficulties to our family, not the last place. Amen? And, that, and, that should be, and that's God's heart. Now, it's interesting that this law was used by the Sadducees, wasn't it? This is called the Leverite Law. You know what they said? They came to Jesus and said, they didn't believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees. So they came to Jesus and they said, now what if a man's married 
a, a, a woman's married to a man and he dies, and then she marries the next brother and he dies, and then she marries all seven brothers, and then, and then, then she dies, who will she be married to in the resurrection? And they thought they had Jesus trapped. Like, Jesus is going to go, oh, you're right. Okay, there is no resurrection. You're right. It always cracks me up when people test God. That's the dumbest thing you can do. Amen? Yeah, we've all done it, haven't we? We test God. Like God's going to change his mind for us. Right? Oh, we got him. We got it all figured out. So they came to him. You know what he told them? What did he tell them? You're not going to be married in heaven. He said, when you get to heaven, there's nobody given in marriage in heaven. And, he, and again, he answered their question, and I love, he, he basically told them that they didn't understand because they didn't know what the scripture said. And you know what, people have some different ideas about heaven. By the way, just so you know this, you're not going to be married in heaven, contrary to what the Mormons might say. The Mormons believe they're going to have their own planet, and that's why they believed in polygamy for a while, and I still think they do. And they believed in having multiple wives, and then by having multiple wives, you had to go populate your own planet someday, and you're going to be God of your own planet, and the God of our planet used to be a man on another planet, and that's a bunch of noise. What does the Bible say? You're not going to be married in heaven. Some of you are going, whew, that's good, right? No, that's not good. You shouldn't feel it. You, hopefully, you're like, well, that's kind of a bummer. I love my wife. But you know what? It's going to be greater because God has a plan. You know why? Because we're going to be his bride, amen? We're going to be married to him. You're not going to find a better spouse than that anywhere in the world. Now look at verse 7. But if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, I can see this happening. No way. I didn't like her to begin with. Now I've got to marry her, and, all the, and the kids are his, and I don't get... No, I don't want to do it. What does it say happens here? Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. So she does the right thing. She brings him before the elders. Again, she brings him before the spiritual leaders of the church. His actions needed to be brought to light. Verse 8. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her. So they, the elders of the city bring him in. They don't force him to marry her. But they remind him of the law. Here's what God said. You're supposed to marry her. Here's what God said. Here's why. Because if you don't marry her, the land could fall into the hands of a stranger. Be taken from your family forever. It was God's plan. God knew this was going to happen to your brother. God's not surprised. You need to marry her, and you're going to have children together, and God's going to bless your marriage, but that's what you need to do. Now, they're not going to force him, though. And he can continue to say, no, I'm not going to do it. Guess what? With disobedience comes not only a lost blessing, but consequences for sin. And he's saying, I've heard what the Bible says. I've heard what godly counsel says. I know what the law says. I'm not going to do it anyway. The closest thing I see this today is when people come into my office and they want to get divorced from their spouse and they have no biblical grounds. And they'll say to me, but well, I'm going to do it anyway. And I can't force you to do anything, but I'll say, you have no biblical grounds. I don't care. He's a jerk. It doesn't matter. You have no biblical grounds. Yeah, but, no, yeah, but he, you, you're married. Well, God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, the same thing's happening here. Now, it'd be, it would be interesting if the same results happened today as happened in this text, because look what would happen if the guy just wouldn't do it. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. That's in the Bible. Now, removing the sandal from his foot was, a, was symbolizing that he wasn't fulfilling his duty. It was showing that he wasn't walking in the walk and doing what he was supposed to do. And then spitting in his face was a, literally a very um, condescending thing to do. It was a very, you know, looking down on somebody in a very harsh way. And it was an open shame because this was done in front of the elders of the city. 
And when she spit in his face, it was a sign of contempt. It was an act of shame and disgrace. This whole event was something that, again, would reveal to everybody that he was unwilling to be true to his brother, true to his family, true to his tribe, true to his nation, and true to his God. And the man would walk away disgraced. So do you think he might think twice about whether or not he really wanted to do this marriage thing? Well, maybe, but some of them were going to do it anyway. And they were just going to reject God's highest. And if they did, there was going to be consequences for their sin. In so doing, again, he had given up his right to her. And that's what this action was to show. It says, and answer and say, so it shall be done to a man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of whom had his sandal removed. How would you like that for a name for the rest of your life? So from now on, everybody in Israel will go, oh, that's the guy who got his sandal taken away. Oh, I know him. You mean the guy who got his sandal taken away? Oh, yeah, I remember him. Oh, yeah, and then she spit in his face. I remember that. The guy that wouldn't come. Now, do you, I, I, it doesn't say anything in the Bible about this, but can you imagine if that guy went to someone else and wanted to marry their daughter? I'd be like, dude, get out of here. Go away. You weren't even faithful to the one you were supposed to marry. You're not going to have anything to do with my daughter. And again, this was a stigma. Why? Because he was being disobedient to the Lord. And when we're disobedient, sin has consequences. Now, these next two verses, if I didn't teach verse by verse of the Bible, there's no way I'd be teaching you these two verses. But they're in here. And so there it is. Now, I want to say this before I move on. Now, you already read ahead, and you're like, oh, man. Now, let me say this. Before I do, this Leverite law happened one other time that we know very clearly in the Bible. Who was it? Ruth. Remember that? Do you know the man that was supposed to take her as, as a husband, what did he do? He said, I'm not doing it. Took off a sandal. He didn't get spit in the face somehow. I don't know how he got past that. But he got a sandal off, and he didn't do it. And then another of her relatives came named Boaz, right? Kinsman redeemer, and he married her. Now, what's interesting about this is that he then got her inheritance. They then came together. But you know what's interesting about all this? Is they had a grandson. What was his a great-grandson? What was his name? David. You know, they had another descendant, the son of David. Who was that? Jesus. Do you think the guy that refused to marry Ruth kind of missed out on it a little bit? Again, we disobey God, we miss out on God's blessings, and we reap the consequences of our sin. And this guy said, oh, no, I'm not taking it. Forget it. I don't want it. I'm not doing it. Again, you missed out on God's highest because you disobeyed the Lord. Again, we don't have these laws in place anymore. But again, may we trust that God's highest is always what's best. Even when we don't get it, even when we don't understand, even when we don't think it's fair, trust the Lord. We always do when we disobey God is we miss out on His highest. So criminals were beaten openly that they might be made well. But guess what? There's another example. Again, before I move on to that next verse. The criminals were beaten, were beaten right, openly because of their criminal acts. And it was done to make the city well, to restore the city again. And then we see here that a man who would not take the rightful wife his sandal was removed and they spit in his face. Who does this sound like? What did they do to Jesus? They beat him openly. Why? Because of our crimes, that we might be made well. Amen? And then we see that they spit in his face and they removed his sandals, they removed his clothes, and they drove a nail through his heel. Why? Because of our sin. Now, this man was spit in his face and his sandal was removed because he wouldn't take his bride. Jesus' sandal was removed. His clothes were removed. His face was spit in so he could take his bride. Amen? It's a very clear picture again of the Lord. Throughout the entire Old Testament, everything again is pointing 
to Jesus. So, praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring the shame for me. So, righteous punishment, righteous provision. Now, righteous protection. Now, look what it says here. Let's read verses 11 and 12. If two men fight together, and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand attacking him, and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals. That's not good. Then you shall cut off her hand. I guess it's not good. Your eyes shall not pity her. Now, what's interesting is that this follows up the verses where the woman's spitting in the guy's face. And I don't think it's by chance that in one case, that she, out of right, in, in a righteous way, was, was bringing this man before the elders, and because of that, she was able to condemn this man for not doing what God had told her. But God, I, at the same time, didn't want the women running amok. Now, okay, well, spitting in faith, if they don't do it, then you spit in the face, and this guy doesn't do this, then you go after him. I think it's very clear to say, hey, women, we have a role and men have a role. Amen? And you know what? Part of the time, as, as parents and as husbands and as wives, we take our spouse's side even when we don't know the whole story. Because that's just what we do, right? We protect our kids. We protect our family. We you know what? It was not becoming of a woman if two guys are brawling to jump in the middle. That's not good. And he's saying there should be purity here. And this is not, you know, she's not to go out and just because she's spitting, you know, the, they're allowed to spit in the face of the man who would not become her husband, that now women are to go out and be brawling with men and jumping into the middle of things and to meddle in that way. They weren't supposed to do that. And again, there needed to be purity and humility and submission in the heart of a godly woman. And this is not an action that a godly woman should have anything to do with. And the fact that he wrote it down in here must have been because there were going to be some who did it. Or he wouldn't put it in the Bible, right? Amen? So he says, if it happens, cut off her hand. And you think a woman might think twice. Keep your hands to yourself, right? Amen? Keep your hands. I love that. The old King James says, grabs him in his secrets. I like that better. <laughs> Keep your hands to yourself, right? She's not to meddle where she doesn't belong. And it's okay, again, even admirable for a woman to defend her husband, but there's certain lines that shouldn't be crossed. Amen? Keep your hands to yourself. Enough said. Verse 12. Okay, verse, verse, oh, well, the rest of verse 12 says there, then it says, then you shall cut off her hand, and your eyes shall not pity her. When a woman overstepped her bounds, and the penalty was harsh. Some battles need to be left again in the hands of your husband, more importantly, in the hands of the Lord. And any defense of your husband should be done with modesty, gentleness, and purity. There was a woman who interceded on behalf of her husband with David. What was her name? Abigail. And you know what? That was a godly way of interceding for her husband. Her husband was blowing it big time. And David said he was going to kill him. Do you remember that? He's toast. Now, Abigail didn't go out and, you know, start grabbing David, right? What did she do? She went out and interceded for her husband. You know, my, my husband is kind of a mess, and, you know, you should forgive him. And, and you know what? David saw so much God in her that when her husband did die, Abigail became his wife, right? Again, done in modesty done in a kind and a loving way. That's how we should resolve disputes. Not brawling on the floor and doing things we shouldn't do. God was again warning. This is a good warning again for us within marriage. How many of you know, you know if you've been married any length of time, that you're crossing the line in an argument with your spouse? There's certain things you can say that will absolutely wound your spouse. Isn't that true? It's a fact, isn't it? Nobody knows your spouse better than you. And nobody knows you better than your spouse. And you know what? Don't fight dirty is what those previous two verses were about, and we shouldn't do that in our marriages either. 
We should not, you know, go after each other in that way. That's not godly. That's not kind. And again, I know that sometimes you get enraged with each other. You get upset and you want to just lash out. And if I say that, that'll really hurt them. If I say that, that'll really hurt her. That will wound her. You know what? You need to be each other's biggest encouragement, not be wounding each other. Amen? Be kind. Be loving. Be gracious to one another. Righteous protection for those who would attempt to take advantage of others in business. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. What was this about? When they did business in those days, they used a scale often when they were selling and buying. And so what would happen if you wanted to you know, rip somebody off, you would have a smaller weight for when you were selling and a bigger weight for when you were buying. Somebody comes up and wants to sell you something, and you go, oh, okay. And you pull out a smaller weight, and you put it up there, and here's how much it weighs, right? And now you're getting more for less money. And when it's time to sell, you put on the bigger weight. And now, you know what I mean? And, vice versa. and so what you're doing is you're basically ripping people off by having different measures and different weights. And this was obviously something that could happen when they went into the land of promise. And he was warning them that we should, you know, can I encourage you with something as Christians? You should never feel like you've got to do everything you can to get the best deal possible to get, you know, quote, get over on somebody. Oh man, got that guy. I think it was worth so much more money and I, you know, I, I got him to give, me, give it to me for 10 cents on the dollar. I think we should be proud of that. Amen? The person's selling it because they're struggling. The last thing we want to do is take advantage of somebody when they're hurting. And again, I'm not saying don't negotiate and get a fair price, but it shouldn't be a situation where we're trying to do everything we can to rip somebody off. It says they're, that, that they're not to cheat them. You know, Amos would later say, those who have a smaller bushel and a bigger shekel and cheated with dishonest scales, he rebuked them for doing that. Micah rebuked those with short measures and wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights. In Proverbs, it tells us that God pays attention to these things. It says, a just balance and scales belong to the Lord, and all the weights of the bag are of his concern. So does that mean that God knows when I'm ripping somebody off? Absolutely. God knows if I'm treating someone with fairness, and God is grieved when we don't. I said this to you guys, I think it was Sunday or last Wednesday. There are people I've met when I sold Yellow Page ads that would say, I don't do business with Christians because every time I have, they've ripped me off. That grips my heart. That grips my heart. Because as Christians, we should be the ones giving it away. Amen? We should be the ones giving them extra, giving them more, blessing them in such a way that they would want to know our God. Because you know what? What we're giving up is temporal to bring people to what is eternal. Amen? The only thing we're taking to heaven with is is people. So when you're interacting with people, walk away with a godly testimony as opposed to trying to walk away with a few extra bucks. Amen? And so he's saying here, these scales, they need to be fair. Christians should not be trying, again, to see how much they can get on their side of the deal. You know, let the buyer beware. That's a worldly concept, not a Christian one. Amen? If you're selling a car that's got a banned transmission, tell them. Oh, Pastor Dave, that's just dumb. I won't get as much money. Okay. All right. Or, or just lie to him instead and let him drive the car down the road and the next day when the tranny falls out and he remembers that you were a Christian and you invited him to Calvary Chapel, right? He's going to be bad-mouthy to every person he knows. Again, don't chase that which is temporal and harm that which is eternal. The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. Verse 15. You shall have a perfect and a just weight, a perfect and a just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now, wait a minute. So if I treat people fairly, what does that verse say? God's going to bless me. 
Wouldn't you rather have God blessing you than trying to get a few extra bucks from somebody else? He says here, measure it right, treat them right, and I'll lengthen your days. Measure it right, treat them right, and I'll bless you. Now, we don't do it so we'll be blessed, but when we are obedient to God, we will be blessed. That's the kind of God that we serve. He's going to bless those who are faithful. Verse 16, for all who do such things, all who have become un- become, behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So, we can treat people with kindness and fairness and God will bless us, or we can try to you know, get the good into the bargain and, and not always tell the truth and have, be an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. Who's really winning in that program? It's so much better. You know what, can I tell you something? It's, and again, you know, I don't make a ton of money, but I will do everything I can to make the other person feel blessed. Absolutely will. You know, I sold, when I sold my house, it was funny, it was another Christian guy. We were arguing about the price, but the opposite way of what you would think. He was saying, I want to give you this much. I'm like, dude, I'm not taking that much because I'm not using a realtor and that wouldn't be fair to you, so I'll only take this much. And my mom was doing the paperwork for us and she was laughing. She said, I've been doing real estate for 20, I've never seen people argue in the opposite direction. <laughs> I want to give you more. No, dude, I ain't taking any more than that. Well, I want to, you know what I thought? You know what, that's the way it ought to be, Amen. As Christians, because you know what? I, I, my heart was, I want him to be just be blessed by this experience. This is way more important than whatever the dollar amount is. Because it won't even matter. Amen? It's irrelevant. It just doesn't matter. And you know what's interesting? Not long after that, about a year and a half later, that same guy sold me a car for my daughter at way less than the car was worth. Because he wanted to bless my daughter. He knew she'd save some money from babysitting. And he sold me the car for basically half of what it was worth because he knew how much money my daughter. And that, you know what I thought? Man, that's it right there. There it is. We had two things where both of us just felt incredibly blessed by each other. Instead of somebody walking away going, man, that guy ripped me off. That should never be said of us. Amen? Never be said. Lastly, the final section deals with the Amalekites. And we're going to see both righteous punishment for the Amalekites' ungodly behavior, as well as righteous protection for the children of Israel by removing these guys from their land. Now, righteous punishment does two things. It both punishes the criminal and protects protects the people from future crime. Look at verse 17 and 18. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Now, the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. In the Bible, Esau is a type of the flesh, and so are his descendants. Remember Esau, all he cared, he wanted a bowl of soup. I'll give you my birthright, give me a bowl of soup. He was more concerned about the physical than he was the spiritual. Who's his twin brother? Jacob. All right? Now, the Amalekites are a type or a picture of the flesh. And the Amalekites, what did they do? They're escaping out of Egypt. These are their cousins, right? They're coming out of Egypt, and what do the Amalekites do? They sit at the back, and they watch the weak people. They saw those who were weak and weren't keeping up, and they went out and attacked them and killed them and stole their stuff. So the old people, the invalid people, the tired people, the weak people, they attacked them. You know what the flesh does? He attacks us when we're weak. Amen? And, and what's interesting about this is, I think there's a great uh, spiritual analogy here for all of us, is that we need to make sure we're not at the back of the pack. Amen? As Christians, we ought to be front and center in our walk with God. Not straggling off way back here somewhere, or just don't have time for the Lord, not in fellowship right now, a little too busy seeking after the things of the world. We ought to be front and center with the Lord. We ought to be pursuing Him first and foremost. And we're going to see here, as we look at the Amalekites, how God gave some clear ways to overcome the flesh. Because those at the back of the pack got attacked. 
God doesn't want us to fade away, but to stay front and center. And we learn a lot about how to deal with the flesh by looking at the battles that Israel had with Amalek. Real quickly, in chapter 17 of Exodus, they had a battle at Rephidim. And what happened there was, if you guys remember the story, that Amalek was there coming against Israel, and God told Moses to go stand up. Remember this story? He stands up, and he's holding up his hands. And as long as he holds up his hands, the children of Israel, Joshua leading the army, are defeating the, defeating the Amalekites. Well, he's got his hands up, and they're winning the battle. And in his hands, he's holding his staff. Okay, now the staff in his hands, I believe very clearly, the piece of wood in his hands, a picture of the cross. And as long as, again, the cross is lifted up, the flesh is put to death. And so he's holding up his hands. Holding up your hands also represents surrender to God. It's also a position of prayer. It's a position of worship. You want to have victory over the flesh? Put the cross at the center of your walk. Be a person who's got a heart of worship. Be a person who's surrendered to Almighty God. Be a person who's in prayer constantly. And so he's got his hands up. Well, we know what happens. After a while, Moses' hands get tired. And when his hands fall, what happens? The Malachites start running over the top of the Israelites. So Aaron and Hur, his buddies, come alongside him, and they sit him down on a rock. And while he's sitting on the rock, they come alongside and they hold up his hands for him all day long, it says, till the battle was won. Now again, some more pictures for putting the flesh to death. We need to be seated on the foundation, the rock, Jesus Christ. Amen? He needs to be the foundation of our life. He needs to be the person we turn to in times of difficulty. He needs to be the one that we find our rest in as he was resting upon the rock. But what I also love is that his hands are being held up by Aaron and her, and this is a picture of fellowship. The Bible says a three-chord strand is not easily broken. Amen? And, you know, Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. And we need those who will come and hold up our hands in difficult times when we're struggling in our walk, and we'll hold them up till the sun goes down, like they did for Moses, and won't leave his side and be right there. And you know what happened? The Amalekites got wiped out. They lost the battle. Why did they win? Because, again, they put the flesh to death by pursuing God, by having fellowship, by being in a position of worship, by lifting up, again, the picture for you and I today, the cross of Christ. Now, what happened, though, is that they weren't all defeated. And later, 400 years later, look what it says here in in the last verse. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you the rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven you shall not forget. Some people that think this isn't fair. You're going to wipe out an entire people. Yes. Why? Hundreds of years of rebellion and refusal to repent. That's why. Righteous judgment. God will not force himself on anybody, so at some point he's going to give them what they ask for. They say, no, 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 no. Eventually he's going to say, okay. Again, God's desire is none that none should perish. No, not one. So 400 years later, guess what happened? The command came to wipe them out. Who, did, who got the command? King Saul. King Saul went out, and what did he do? He mounted up an army. The battle already was won. He just needed to go do it. He goes out. He's supposed to kill them all. Samuel said, I anointed you. Go do it. He goes out, and what does he do? He brings back the spoils, and he brings back Agag. Agag was the king. You remember that? He brings Agag back, so it's like hanging on to the king of the flesh. Hanging on to that one part of your life that is the first thing you ought to get rid of. Amen? That one biggest struggle in your walk. That one big area that's got to go. And instead of getting rid of it, he brings it back with him. Then Samuel shows up. And what does Saul say? I did exactly what God told me. Isn't it amazing how we can convince ourselves of that sometimes? I did exactly what God told me. And to prove that God has a sense of humor, 
right then, in the background, right? And he goes, really, what is this, what are these sheep I hear in the background? Then he says, oh, because he's supposed to kill all the animals. Oh, well, the people brought them back so we can make sacrifice. When confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. Confess your sin, right? Repent. Make excuses or blame others. Well, that's what he did. The people did it. It was the people. It was the woman thou gavest me, right? He's blaming it on somebody. And so he blames it on the people and says, and by the way, we did it so we could give it in sacrifice to the Lord. Lord, I cheated on my taxes so I could tithe more, right? It's that kind of a lie. And so what happened? They brought Agag out. Samuel at this time was probably in his late 80s. And out comes Agag. And when Agag comes out in chains and sees Samuel, he thinks, oh, whew, the old guy, he's not, it's going to be great. So what did, what did Samuel do? He pulled out a sword and cut Agag into small pieces. That's what it says. Whoa. Why? Again, Agag, king of the flesh, and what did he put him to death with? The sword. Sword's a picture of God's word. Amen? Now, lastly, we'll close with this. The Amalekites were not all put to death because later when David went to Ziklag, guess who he ran into? whole tribe of Amalekites. Tons of them. And what's interesting is that Saul's death was announced to David by an Amalekite because Saul didn't obey God and put the Amalekites to death, so Amalekite ended up being the one to inform David of his death. If we do not put the flesh to death, the flesh will destroy us. Put the flesh to death completely. Now, it's interesting. There's the last Amalekite in the Bible. Guess who it was? It was a man in the book of Esther. His name was Hamar. Right? Who was he? He was the one who wanted to destroy all the Jews. Do you remember that story? He said, kill all the Jews. Let's kill all the Jews. Let's round them up and destroy them all. And so again... Because he didn't obey God's word, it not only destroyed him, but it impacted Israel for generations to come. If we don't obey God, it impacts us, but it impacts our children and our grandchildren. Amen? It impacts the generations to come. We need to put the flesh to death. The flesh is not, you know what? The flesh cannot be bartered with. Like a terrorist, right? You don't negotiate with a terrorist and you can't negotiate with your flesh. Your flesh will never be satisfied. You can never give it enough to stop tempting. It just won't happen. So the flesh needs to be put to death. So how do we have victory over the flesh? It starts at the cross. We need to be up front and center in our walk with the Lord. We need to have our hands lifted up in prayer and worship and surrender and brokenness. We need to be seated on the rock, Jesus Christ, our foundation. And we need to have those around us in fellowship who will hold up our hands in time of difficulty. How many of you guys need more of that? Amen? We all do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the clear application it has to our lives even today. Lord, we thank you that you're a righteous God, a God of provision, a God of protection, and a God of righteous judgment. Lord, I just thank you for, even in our own lives, how you discipline us because you love us. Those whom you love, you discipline. You discipline us, Lord, not to condemn us or destroy us, but to restore us to right fellowship with you. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us, Lord, I, I pray to, again, have that heart to, to be up front and center with you, to make you the priority in our lives, Lord, and not to make accommodations for the flesh, not to say this part of my life is okay. I'll walk with you over here, Lord, but in this other area, I want to hang on to the world. Lord, may we not do that. And Lord, may you do whatever is necessary to remove that stuff from our lives. Lord, even if it brings, means bringing divine judgment.
and divine discipline. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. And I do pray that we would be kind and loving toward others in such a way that would be a, we'd be salt and light to them, that they would see Jesus in us in the way that we treat them, that we would not try to get from people, but give to them. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.